Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. We've certainly talked about net neutrality quite a bit. Uh, obviously, mostly on the website, but we've also had a few podcasts on it as well, including one that was during the public debate over net neutrality and another after the courts had upheld the FCC's open internet rules. Uh, as you're well aware, we're living in something of a new era now under a President Trump, and net neutrality is very much at risk, uh, specifically Ajit Pai has been bumped up from his existing role as an FCC commissioner to be the new chair of the FCC, taking over for former chair Tom Wheeler. Uh, Wheeler, of course, came in under lots of scrutiny, having formerly been a lobbyist for both the cable and wireless industries. However, he surprised many by leading the way in pushing for and getting adopted a number of consumer-first policies. He properly upgraded the definition of what counted as broadband. He's also the first FCC commissioner, uh, at least in my memory, to actually recognize that the U.S. broadband market is not competitive. He passed some simple but reasonable privacy rules for ISPs who have a fairly long history of trampling on the public's privacy. And of course, after much back and forth and fears that he would go in a different direction, he supported the plan to put in place strong open internet rules based on reclassifying broadband access under Title II of the Communications Act. Contrary to the stories you may have heard, this did not magically burden ISPs with onerous regulations. It just put in place the authority to enforce some fairly basic rules of the road, things like no throttling, no paid prioritization, and similar such things. Of course, not everything went perfectly. Uh, he was unable to get through a fairly modest proposal to increase set-top box competition after the issue was somewhat bizarrely hijacked by the MPAA. Uh, who falsely claimed that it would undermine copyrights, even though the plan wouldn't have had any impact on copyright whatsoever. And as we've discussed, uh, some have argued that the net neutrality plan left open a fairly large hole in the lack of a ban on zero rating, though he tried to take a stand on that in his final days. His replacement, Pi, has made no secret that, uh, of the fact that he simply does not like the FCC protecting consumers in this manner. Uh, he's pushed back against nearly every one of the proposals that I've spoken about and in the past week or two has uh, explicitly dismantled some of them. Uh, he's been rather uh, explicit that he, he's what he can't roll back, he doesn't necessarily plan to enforce. Uh, throughout Wheeler's tenure at the FCC, uh, one of his top advisors was Gigi Sohn, uh, who spent many years fighting for net neutrality and other important internet freedoms and rights. Uh, with the end of Wheeler's role at the FCC, she's now moved on to be a fellow at the Open Society Foundation, 
uh, where she'll continue fighting for an open internet even as it's under attack. Uh, Gigi is joining us today to talk uh, about what happened the past few years at the FCC, but mostly to talk about what's coming up and what needs to be done to protect the internet. And I should say, this is the second time we're recording because we tried to record this about a week ago and I messed up and it didn't work and Gigi is kind enough to come back again. So Gigi, thank you very much for, for joining the podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. And I not only came back again, I came into your backyard. <laughs> so we're sitting here uh, in the Stanford Park Hotel in Palo Alto, and we're going to talk net neutrality. So I'm excited. Absolutely. So um, let, let's start with the big question. Uh, so so how, how's net neutrality these days? <laughs> <laughs> net neutrality, as you said, is under attack. First of all, as you alluded to, Chairman Pai just a couple days ago decided to stop an investigation into whether AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile were discriminating in favor of certain content applications and services through zero rating. That is, allowing some services and applications and content to come under their data caps while, while having others not come under the data cap. So we had pretty, gone, pretty much gone pretty far down the road in our investigation we found both that AT&T's DirecTV Now service, which favored its own a DirecTV video service, and also uh, Verizon's Freebie, or Go90, was also discriminatory. Uh, we had sort of had tentative conclusions uh, that this was the case, and he just said, well, we're throwing those out. We're not doing that anymore. Yeah, and... That's a problem. I mean, at least from our perspective, what we've described on the site is that, um, you know, the, the sort of zero rating is effectively a loophole through which um, a lot of bad things can happen. So now are they effectively saying that that's, that's fair game to, to use that to, to basically, you know, favor and prioritize certain types of traffic, mainly their own or those that people will pay for? Chim Pai is very smart, right? The way he messaged this was to say, hey, everybody loves free data, right? but that's not the point. Well, first of all, I think you have to ask yourself if what AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile are favoring or not subjecting, subjecting to data caps is video, why do you need data caps in the first place? But be that as it may, it's not about whether you're getting free data or not. It's about whether they are using their gatekeeper status, right? They control access to the internet whether they're using that status to discriminate in favor of certain content applications and services, and particularly in the case of AT&T, where it's their vertically owned content, right? They own DirecTV now. The incentive to favor that content over, let's say, Netflix or even NBC or Fox is huge, right? So that, to me, is the absolute worst example of zero rating. We can argue whether all zero rating is good, all zero rating is bad, or we, we certainly wouldn't argue that all zero rating is good, but we can argue whether there are some zero rating programs that aren't the end of the world. But let's be honest, with AT&T DirecTV Now, that is the paradigmatic example of a discriminatory service that violates our net neutrality rules. And I mean, you know, one of the things that's that's bugged, well, me personally, but I think the, the writers at TechDirt generally, and, and certainly a lot of our readers, is 
is the the way it's been framed. This oh, this whole thing of like free data, or people like to compare it to like one eight hundred services or something. And and you know the argument that we've always made is that you know the the limits and sort of the you know the price per data or the the data caps that they're exempting from zero rating things are things that they set themselves. So it 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 strikes me as incredibly cynical to argue that it's pro consumer to lift the you know, onerous conditions that you yourself put down in the first place. Um, you know, I, I've sort of compared it to like, you know, you're not a hero if you save someone from the house that you set on fire in the first place. And that's kind of what it feels like is happening here. And yet they're able to frame that as sort of a, you know, a pro-consumer thing, even though it, it's, you know, in reality, if you take a step back and you look, it's exactly the opposite. Yeah, one of the things that I had wanted the FCC to look at, not only during my time at the FCC, but also before when I was running a nonprofit called Public Knowledge, was at, was data caps just generally, setting aside zero rating and, and to basically ask the carriers, how do you determine what your data cap will be? How do you determine when to raise it? You know, what's, what, is, what are the costs? You know, do an overall investigation because it's my sense, particularly when it comes to fixed wireline ISPs, there's no reason for a data cap other than to create scarcity. You know, the the case for wireless maybe is a little bit stronger, but again, I hearken back to the fact that every one of the services zero rated under these plans is video. That's your big bandwidth hog that supposedly you, you want to limit the use of. So if you're exempting that, I think it just calls into question why do you need a data cap? And the answer is, the cynical answer is, well, we need it to create artificial scarcity so we can charge you at the yin-yang when you go over the cap. <laughs> uh, <laughs> great. <laughs> um, so um, if we're, you know, so, so that's, that's the zero rating stuff. And, and obviously that's um, unfortunately basically, you know, gone from the discussion. Um, but uh let, let's take a step back to the to to everything having to do with like you know the the open internet rules and title 2 um you know there are some questions there and and well let's let's take an even further step back for for the people who don't live deep in the weeds on this stuff like like we do um you know what happened with the, the you know everyone talked about title 2 but what is title 2 and and how does that apply and and what happened with the original open internet rules um, that, that got us to the point where we're at now. So I hate to do this to everybody, but we're going to go back to 1934. And that's when the Communications Act of 1934 was, pa- was passed by Congress. Uh, and that was really the first law regulating communications networks. And it actually was the law that created the Federal Communications Commission. So the Communications Act of 1934, and it's been amended several times, 1984, 1992 was for cable. 1996 was a bunch of sort of pro-consumer, pro-competitive provisions in the Telecommunications Act of 1996. But basically, the main law is divided up into titles, or you can call them chapters, okay? So Title II regulates telecommunications services, Title III regulates broadcasting, Title VI regulates cable, and so on and so forth. So let's get back to Title II, which I said regulates telecommunication services. Title II has a number of regulations. It's got like 47 provisions in it. And they require that telecommunications providers, which, you know, in 1934 was the telephone service, Bell Telephone, 
that they have just and reasonable rates, that they don't violate the privacy of their users, that they don't engage in fraudulent billing. So there's all kinds of sort of consumer protections under which telecommunications providers provide service. So for from 1934 all the way up, you know, through the 90s, it was understood that if a company provided the on-ramp to a communications service, whether it was a telephone system or the internet, it was a telecommunications service and it was regulated accordingly. And that was true when, you know, we went from a dial-up world to digital subscriber line or DSL, because if you recall, telephone companies provided the first on-ramp to the internet. Then in the late 90s, early 2000s, came cable modem service. Of course, blue DSL out of the water, but because it was provided by cable companies, nobody knew how to regulate it. Do you regulate it under Title VI, which I said before generally regulates cable companies? Well, it's not really a cable video service. Or is it regulated as a Title II telecommunications service? Well, the FCC chair in the late 90s, Bill Kennard, kind of a conflict-averse person, didn't want to decide it, and he didn't. In fact, a Ninth Circuit court decided for the FCC that, indeed, cable modem service was a telecommunications service. But later on, the Democrats were out, the Republicans were back in. Michael Powell, the son of Colin Powell, became the FCC chair. And he decided that, indeed, cable modem service, excuse me, it was not Michael Powell, it was Michael Powell's successor, Kevin Martin, also George W. Bush's FCC chair, decided that neither cable modem service nor DSL service should be classified as telecommunication services, but instead they should be classified as deregulated information services, which, like I said, they're not regulated at all. There's a provision in Title I of the Communications Act which talks about information services. So that's how we got to a place where broadband internet access was, for all intents and purposes, completely deregulated. And it led to, I would say, 12 years of great consolidation, a lot of consumer harm, angry consumers, and an effort starting, really starting almost as soon as uh, they deregulated, they they classified broadband internet access as an information service to get some sort of protections to preserve an open internet, to make sure that the gatekeepers couldn't discriminate against the applications, content, and services that rode on their networks. At first, it was called open access, and then thanks to Professor Tim Wu, Columbia, started to be called network neutrality. I can continue if you'd like. I can talk about the court cases and how sure. we got to where well, we are. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that it is important to go through some of the background. Um, you know, I think everyone remembers, you know, sort of the the almost year-long debate over, you know, what how uh, Commissioner Wheeler was going to classify broadband. But I think it's important actually to understand, you know, what happened. And, and there were there were, you know, previous sort of open internet rules and court cases that resulted in the reason why Wheeler did what he did. did. And, you know, sort of a, a quick overview, I think, would be really helpful. Sure. So as I said before, Kevin Martin in 2002 uh, said that broadband is no longer a, a, a regulated telecommunications service under Title II. It is an information service. 
But in 2007-2008, Comcast got caught blocking an upload of the King, King James Bible. Now, let me backtrack a little bit. <clears throat> because there was such an uproar about the reclassification, Kevin Martin put into place an internet policy statement that said that consumers have the right to the applications and services of their choice. They have the right to the to the to the to attach the device of their choice. They have the right to competition. Okay, and these were unenforceable principles. But he thought that that would kind of you know work to kind of mollify people who were concerned about ISP power. So then Comcast gets caught with its hands on the King James King James Bible. And Chairman Martin, who, by the way, was no great fan of the cable industry, wants to punish them. So in 2008, the FCC comes out with a decision that says that Comcast violated these principles. They, again, they were not rules. They were principles. Uh, and therefore, you know, they have to stop doing it. They, they didn't fine them or punish them in any other way, but just said, you have to manage your network differently. Well, that went to the... Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, that's a federal court, and the court there said, nope, sorry, you know, um, all the provisions of the Communications Act that you're using uh, as your, as your um, legal authority just doesn't work, okay? He did not use Title II, right, because again, they classify it as an information service, so you can't, if it's not a telecommunication service, Title II doesn't apply. And the court said, nope, sorry. Uh, they didn't even reach the question as to whether principles could be enforceable, but they just said the FCC does not have the legal authority to tell Comcast how to manage its network. So Obama's in, Bush is out. Julius Janikowski is the new chair. So he starts a rulemaking, right? So this time we're actually going to get rules. And the rules were not the strongest in any way, shape, or form. They treated wireline and wireless differently to start, uh, and, and well, start and end because I thought that was a, a huge big deal. The, the wireline rules were fairly strong, but leaving wireless open I thought was a, a huge gaping hole. But most importantly, after you know, acting kind of Hamlet-like uh, <laughs> to try to trying to figure out what he should do, he did not reclassify broadband internet access as a telecommunication service. Instead. He tried to base the rules on Section 706 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. It's part of the Communications Act, the big Communications Act that I was talking about before. It was added in 1996. It has very broad general language about the FCC having a duty to promote broadband deployment and to act to prevent barriers to broadband deployment. So he said, aha, that's the hook that I'm going to hang our authority on. And, and the rules were adopted at the end of, of 2010. And there was great disappointment by myself and my public interest colleagues that he did that. Well, almost four years later, well, I guess it was three years later, in January 2014, the court, led by the same judge who wrote the opinion, uh, the Comcast opinion in, in 2008, said, nope, sorry, Section 706 does not give you the legal authority to adopt these rules, to adopt the kind of rules that you adopted here. So that's when, in 2014, Chairman Wheeler's FCC was then left to decide what kind of rules there would be. There's no question that there would be rules, 
But the big question, of course, was, was he going to ground them in the strongest legal authority, which meant reclassifying broadband internet access as a telecommunications service under Title II. So that's how we got there. Long story long. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, um, and, and, you know, my argument had always been, you know, when you look at it, you know, the courts sort of laid that out very clearly. And, and as you sort of described, what the courts kept saying was like, you don't have the authority. And it's pretty clear from the law that the only way that you actually do get that authority is to to reclassify broadband as Title II. Um, and so, and that's that's what happened. Now, the the concerns that people raised, which I thought were, were overblown, was that Title II has a whole bunch of other stuff in it, and some of which could be seen as as very onerous or or very burdensome. And yet the way the rules are written, it's very clear that they explicitly and and I believe that they had to do this, but explicitly say that that, you know, large parts of Title II will not be enforced against ISPs. It's it's really just to get the authority to put in place the sort of no blocking, no prioritization um kinds of rules. Is that uh, you know um would you like me to explain that? Let <laughs> yes. me explain that. So this was one of the other gifts of the uh, Telecommunications Act of 1996. It gave the FCC the power if it found that certain parts of the Communications Act were no longer in the public interest or no longer necessary, not to apply those provisions, or as we call it in the business, forbear from applying certain provisions. Now, I said early on in the show that Title II had 47 provisions. The FCC, when it reclassified broadband internet access as a telecommunications service, forbore from all but 12 of those provisions. And what are the 12 provisions? Well, again, they're the really core ones about, you know, terms, price terms and conditions being just and reasonable, privacy, you know, truth in billing. So the stuff that's really core to consumer protection and to maintaining a fast, fair, and open network we kept those. But there are other things like, for example, back in the day, telephone companies had to post tariffs. In other words, they had to basically say, this is what I'm going to charge. Well, obviously, we're not going to make broadband providers do stuff like that. So the really kind of old-fashioned stuff and, and the, the processes for us actually setting rates, which the FCC could do. The FCC with telephone companies could say, okay, you're going to charge X. All right. But we basically got rid of all the processes that would have enabled the FCC to do that. So, um, you know, this notion that we were overburdening the companies with, you know, all these regulations under Title II, it's a bunch of nonsense because we forbore from the vast majority of those regulations. Yeah, and and sort of two points on that. One was, you know, I, I actually thought that Chairman Wheeler, when he sort of, I, th- I think it, he said this sort of when the rules came out, was he sort of, he called it sort of a First Amendment you know, for for broadband, or I forget exactly how he described it, but he used the sort of First Amendment analogy, which I thought was really good because, you know, I mean, the First Amendment is in some sense a regulation, but it's it's sort of, uh, you know, it's it's sort of clearing the field and saying these are the things that we can't do, or and 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 or, or that certain players can't do. You know, with First Amendment, Congress can't make laws, and so in this case, it's just saying that. You know, you can't do some of these really bad things, but it wasn't putting any other sort of incredible burden um, on players. And and similar to that, you actually had ISPs, and, and I'm thinking of Sonic in particular, but a few others that came out and basically, you know, made it clear, like, as long as you're not doing anything bad to consumers and evil, there's no burdensome regulations associated with this. 
Um, and so, you know, it's, it seems strange for, for companies to argue otherwise. But now let's, so let's, let's fast forward to today, <laughs> where we are today. We've sort of gotten the history. Um, and I think a lot of people are kind of asking, well, well, what happens? What happens to that rule? And what happens to the, the, the fact that um, broadband has been reclassified under Title II? Can, can the new FCC sort of just wipe that away, or, or what happens? I think it's important to add one other point before I talk about that, right. and that is a court, in fact, led by the same judge who wrote the opinion in the, in the first two failures the FCC had in trying to adopt net neutrality rules, they upheld what we did. They said yes. In fact, it's kind of funny because in, 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 the, in the case that looked at the Janikowski rules, the weak Janikowski rules, they basically said, you know, you, you guys could really reclassify and you'd be cool. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, as a person who, who, who advocated for that, just, you just wanted to kill, right? <laughs> um, so the court said, and, and all three of the members of the court, including a conservative one who otherwise dissented, said, yeah, you know, you had the authority here to reclassify, and this is, you know, this is the hook on which you can hang these, these rules. And, and that was critically important, you know, because you, you can't, an agency has to show that it's, you know, it has to show a record supporting its rules. And in this case, where an agency is changing its mind, it has to show how, how things have changed in order to warrant such a change. And we were able to do that because when when broadband was declassified or reclassified as an information service, <clears throat> the rationale at the time was, well, there's going to be tons of competition. And when you buy, you know, internet access service, you're also buying email and you're buying web service. And none of these things are true anymore, right? So it was very easy to make the case that the rationales for the original reclassification no longer held, and we had to reclassify again. So, I, but I think it's critically important to say the D.C. Circuit upheld us right. uh, and said that our rationale was absolutely right, and it hearkened importantly to a Supreme Court case called Brand X. So, Brand X happened after the the FCC in two thousand two classified broadband internet access as an information service. That case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in 2005, the Supreme Court said, with Antonin Scalia vigorously dissenting, that, you know, the FCC's decision probably isn't the best reading of the Communications Act of 1934, but they have the authority, they have the ability to, you know, determine and 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 what their statute means and we're going to uphold it. And it's really the same thing here, right? Is that the FCC based on a solid record determined that broadband internet access was no longer an information service. It was a it was a telecommunication service. Interestingly, Scalia said there is a no way that you can read the Communications Act and not say that broadband internet access is a telecommunication service. It's transport you know, to the network, therefore, there's no other reading. He said the plain language of the law It was probably one of the few times or perhaps the only time, it's not the only time, because he's had some good copyright cases too, sure. uh, that I agreed with Antonin Scalia. <laughs> okay. And then, so, so, but what happens now? All right, okay. I kind of <laughs> lost my train of thought because no I was problem. like so excited to agree with Scalia. Uh, <clears throat> 
So what, if the FCC wants to reverse this decision, they would have to undergo an entirely new rulemaking. They'd have to put out a new notice of proposed rulemaking. They'd have to take notice and comment. And if you recall, last time, four million, on nearly 4 million Americans weighed in, vast majority, in favor of Title II. So they'd have to do it all over again. And then they'd have to show a court, like we did, that in two and a half, three short years, circumstances had completely changed and that this just wasn't a political decision. And I think that that is a tough road to hoe. And and Ajit Pai, being a former administrative lawyer, I think knows this. Be that as it may, I still think he'll start a proceeding because the ultimate goal is for Congress to pass a compromise bill. And I can assure you that unless something drastically changes, this Congress is not going to pass a bill that A, adopts strong net neutrality rules, and B, allows the FCC to continue to protect consumers and competition with privacy rules, with truth in billing rules, that sort of thing. And that's, it's, it's going to be for Pi all about giving Congress leverage so that the congressional Republicans can say to the Democrats, look what's going on at the FCC, you better cut a compromise. But that compromise cannot include basically stripping the FCC of all of its power to protect consumers and competition. And, and so I, I think that's important to unpack a little bit too, because we saw some of this during the, you know, the, the last fight for, um, you know, for these open rules, which was Congress sort of tried to step in at the last minute and try and cut that off. And they offered a bill that, that looked like a net neutrality bill. And they sort of framed it as, look, there's everything that you want in this bill. The bill has no throttling, no prioritization. So, you know, uh, you know what's, what's the big complaint here? And that's basically what they're talking about doing again now, I believe, is sort of a bill that looks like net neutrality, and you read it, and if you're um, perhaps not, you know, not, uh, uh, you know, not as deeply involved in these things, you know, you could you look at it and say it looks like it's a bill saying preserving net neutrality, and yet it's it's got a lot of problems. So can you describe, you know, where the problems are with that that approach? So the problem with a bill that just puts in into law, the three bright line rules. So no throttling, no blocking, no pay prioritization doesn't give the FCC the flexibility to deal with, for example, zero rating, right? Because that's not necessarily, in some cases, like, you know, T-Mobile was throttling, but, you know, in the AT&T DirecTV Now issue, right? There's, there's no blocking, there's no throttling, there's no paid prioritization, right? So it doesn't give the FCC the flexibility to look at other practices that may come down the pike. You know, the ISPs are very smart, right? They'll easily be able to route around those three restrictions. And quite honestly, they're fine. They say, we don't block, we don't throttle. So, you know, we don't do paid prioritization. They will find ways to get around it that still discriminate. And the FCC has got to have that flexibility. That's number one. Number two is... The compromise bill from from two years ago, as I said before, would have stripped the FCC from any and all ability to protect consumers and competition when it comes to broadband, essentially leaving the agency to be a spectrum management agency, which is the ultimate goal. The ISPs do not want to be regulated by the Federal Communications Commission. They do not want rules. They're comfortable with the FTC, which just does enforcement. And, you know, you can only bring so many enforcement actions, right, and investigations. It's very resource intensive. 
The good thing about, you know, prophylactic rules is it moderates bad behavior. And that's what the FCC does. It's different than the FTC. I think in a lot of ways it's more effective than the FTC. Uh, but that's what the ISPs really want to get rid of. But the, I mean, the, the devil's advocate there is that, you know, the FTC's role is to sort of protect consumers. And in fact, there are some complaints that, you know, with Title II, it sort of takes away the, the FTC's ability to do that at all. It sort of, you know, forces that onto the FCC. And so, you know, the playing devil's advocate here, the argument is always that, you know, this is what the FTC does best. Why can't they handle this as well? The FTC is a generalist agency that enforces a law that's, that only prohibits unfair and deceptive trade practices. Okay? And that, that doesn't include a lot of the things that we care about. Eight, you know, what's unfair and deceptive about AT&T DirecTV now? Probably not, right? They're saying, here it is, guys. We're favoring our own content, <laughs> not being deceptive. I, I suppose you could argue that it's unfair. But it's kind of a tough road to hoe. Uh, so the two agencies have very different roles. The FCC is the expert agency. Okay, the FTC is a generalist agency. The other thing is it's not unusual. In fact, it's common to have multiple regulators of important industries. I mean, look at the transportation industry. Look at the banking industry. Look at the healthcare industry. When there is an industry that is so critical the, you know, to the economy, to free speech, to education, to anything you care about, healthcare, what is wrong? It's not only not wrong, it, I think it's both prudent and necessary to have multiple regulators. So this notion that there only should be one regulator, I think is a bunch of nonsense and, and, a, and a bad idea. All right. <laughs> Tell I us don't if, feel strongly about that. I was going to say, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> um, all right. So, so I know we're running out of time already, and there's so much stuff that we didn't cover. So I think we're going to do kind of a lightning round okay. uh, on a few other things. But um, let's talk about sort of competition and municipal broadband. Um, you know, one thing I didn't mention this in the opening, one of the things the FCC under Wheeler and, and yourself tried to do was to um, uh, preempt some state laws that sort of tried to, to – uh, block municipal broadband, and that failed in the courts. Um, and yet many of us still see municipal broadband as, as really uh, an opening for uh, where we could bring in real competition to broadband. So uh, what happened there and what do you see happening there going forward? So we preempted the laws of North Carolina and Tennessee that prohibited any municipality from either building their own broadband system or even partnering with a private partner to do so, and also prohibited those lucky few towns and cities that had built their own broadband from expanding. And look, we knew that it was going to be tough for us to win in court, but it was one of those cases where you just do the right thing and see maybe maybe you get lucky and, you know, not lucky. Look, we had an interesting theory of why we should win. It just didn't you know, we, we, we failed to prove the, you know, prove it to a court. So what's the future? I actually think, you know, community broadband, municipal broadband, whatever you want to call it, I think is actually could be one of the sort of the shining uh, positive things that happens over the next four years. You know, after we came out with our decision, but before the court decided, there were dozens of cities and towns looking at building their own municipal broadband systems. And I think that's great. I think, you know, we should continue 
pushing for that. I also would like to see uh, one state be used as kind of like a petri dish, one state that has restrictions, and see if we can get every chamber of commerce, every school, every library, every university, and every mayor go to the state legislature and say, you're killing economic development in our city and in this state. You're keeping young people out. You're keeping jobs out to see whether we can actually have a template for repealing uh, those laws. We also have to be mindful, already in Virginia and Missouri, laws were introduced to limit broadband. I mean, I thought those days were over, right? Because you know, what, what happens in these states is you know, Comcast, AT&T, not so much Verizon, Charter, they, they run to their pals in the state legislature and they say, this bill will be really great for jobs, so just introduce it. And, you know, state legislators, God bless them, you know, they don't necessarily know what's going on with something like that, and they introduce these bills. And that happened a lot in, you know, like the early aughts. But then the light of day was shown on them and people went crazy and the companies kind of stopped trying to do that. But now they're starting up again, uh, which is really uh, quite remarkable. But now folks have their eye out for it. So in Virginia, this bill that really was modeled on the North Carolina law that we uh, preempted basically has been shrunk down to almost nothing. It, it's it's still dangerous, and, and folks that want to build community broadband in Virginia are still opposing it. But there has been a huge outcry against it. McAuliffe has threatened to veto it, uh, Governor McAuliffe. Of all places, the Roanoke Times has been just beating the drum uh, against this bill because they know that it hurts rural areas the most, right? Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, they don't want to build in rural areas. So what you're saying is, you know, we don't want the government to build, but we're not going to build either. So what ends up happening is these rural areas have no broadband. They have no jobs. I actually drove down when I was at the FCC. I drove four hours each way in one day and talked to folks in Lynchburg, Virginia, and they had begged the incumbents to build high-speed, really high-speed broadband. And uh, they're like, no, sorry. So they were looking at other options like fixed wireless and white spaces and other things. Uh, but these bills really hurt the rural areas the most. Uh, it's it's really quite unfortunate. So hopefully the Virginia bill will fail. It's already, like I said, been shrunk to nothing more than a transparency bill, uh, which is good, although a lot of the folks that want to build broadband systems still have a problem with it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's incredible to me in an age where we now have, you know, some really successful municipal broadband deployments and, you know, all the arguments against it have sort of been proven that, that they're they're wrong. And the idea that it's just sort of like, you know, government's taking over or whatever. A lot of them are, are public-private partnerships and they're providing in areas where, you know, where the big players don't really want to provide in the first place. And so um, that's interesting. Um uh, because we're running out of time, we'll, we can move on to a couple other really quick ones. Um, uh, the privacy rules on ISPs. What's uh, that was something that was that was done relatively recently, and kind of what's happening there. So this is what I worry most about in, in the most immediate term, because it took so long for the privacy rules to come out and for it to be made public. In, so, in something called the Federal Register, which is like a compilation of all federal rules, this FCC has petitions for reconsideration, or in other words, petitions asking them to, you know, change their minds in front of them right now. 
And I do fear that if they don't eliminate the rules entirely, they will weaken them significantly. All right. Uh, Set-top box competition. You tried to... (laughs) Sorry to bring up a sore sore subject. Um, You know, you tried to put in place rules that would sort of open up set-top box and create lots more competition, take away, you know, the ability of companies to force everyone to pay lots of money for a box. Uh, What happened there? Well, what happened there was you had both cable and Hollywood working together to, to scotch this thing. And... It was really a slog, and we, you know, the original proposal was really great, would have allowed, you know, anybody to build a device or a piece of software that, you know, could work both with, you know, cable and internet, and they just united against it, and as you mentioned, you know, Hollywood just needs to say, yell, copyright, copyright, three times, <laughs> and then you get, you know, 100 bipartisan members of Congress saying, what's going on here, and uh, you know, the, the, the sad part was, so we, so we changed the proposal significantly. I still think it would have moved the ball forward to the extent that you could have gotten rid of, uh, you know, your cable set-top box and, and either, again, bought another device. And we'd, I think we'd even gotten Hollywood comfortable with it. But we ran out of time. You know, one of the Democratic commissioners was, you know, just couldn't get comfortable with it. Uh, and we just ran out of time. And it was really unfortunate because I'd been pushing for 15 years for the FCC to actually obey the law, right? <laughs> the law says, you know, the FCC shall not, you know, should think about, but shall promote competition for set-top boxes. And we were so close. And it's just, that was perhaps my biggest disappointment at the FCC. All right. Well, that's that's unfortunate. Um, now, as as we're closing out, uh, I'll, I'll ask you, you know, basically what what should and, and I know there there are still other things we didn't cover, but but what should people who are listening to this, people who are concerned about an open internet and competition and all those kinds of things, what should they be doing? What should they be paying attention to? Um, what should they be focused on? What should they be worried about? going forward in the next, you know, well, it could, it could be the next weeks, but also months and years. So the things you should do is continue reading Tech Dirt and listening to this podcast. <laughs> also, look, support the groups in Washington and around the country that are working to preserve net neutrality and preserve FCC authority. You know, they include my former organization, Public Knowledge, Free Press, Fight for the Future, Demand Progress. Uh, New America Foundation. So please, you know, if you can, support them. And not only, frankly, with money, but they're going to have a lot of action alerts. Get on their mailing list and they'll say, you know, now is the time you must, you know, call your member of Congress or now is the time you must weigh in at the FCC. You know, they're not going to do it every day, but they'll do it at strategic times. and, And we really need people's voices. That's critically important. Look, to me, the most important thing that needs to be preserved is the FCC's authority, because this FCC can chip away at privacy. They could refuse to enforce net neutrality. Now, that sets some bad norms, and that's not good. But if you, once again, give away the authority, that's going to be hard to get back. Uh, You know, if we're ever in an era, if we're able to preserve the FCC's power to protect consumers and competition, and, and, you know, those in power care about those kind of things, they can readopt rules, they can strengthen things, you know, they can sort of bring back what was lost. But it's going to be much harder to bring back the agency's authority. Look, it took us, 
13 years to bring it back in the first place. And it was a, you know, it was World War whatever. It was just a world war. I mean, we don't need to give it a number. So, you know, that to me is the most important thing. You know, if you've got time and energy, weigh in on everything. Uh, but the, the, the FCC's power protect consumers' competition and ensure open networks is the most important thing. And if, if there's one thing you have to focus on in this space, it's got to be that. Great. Um, well, uh, thank you very much for, for joining us for a second time. <laughs> uh, sorry about the messed up recording last week. Um, uh, we, we certainly appreciate it. There's, there's obviously lots more stuff going on and, and lots more stuff to talk about and lots of things are happening. So um, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to have you back again uh, as these things develop and, and you can fill us in on, on what's going on and how everyone can, can uh, be active and, and make sure that we preserve whatever, whatever we can cling to at this point. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want people to be too optimistic or too pessimistic. You know, the, you know, the, the fact that Tom Wheeler was turned around on, on Title II was huge, right? And I think bad things, it's a lot easier to stop bad things uh, than get good things on the books. Although, again, it's a challenge because, you know, Democrats who tend to be pro-net neutrality, I don't understand why Republicans aren't, but you know, that's a, for a whole other show. <laughs> um, you know, Republicans control all, all of government. So it's, it's going to be a challenge. But it's not impossible, and and people should not lose faith. All right. Well, on that semi-optimistic <laughs> note, uh, I think I think we'll say thank you, Gigi, for for joining us. Thanks to everyone who's been listening, uh, and uh, we'll be back next week with another podcast. Thanks. Someone will get.